On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, how's it going, everybody? Super Bowl Sunday today. Uh, really excited for uh, rooting on football. Uh, I don't know if does anybody have like a team you're really rooting for, like a team you're, you're bought in for. Okay, so somebody, somebody, one person in the room. Anybody here like plan on not watching the Super Bowl? Anybody online? Just let us know if you're not planning on not watching the Super Bowl. Okay, just just so I know who the audience is. Okay, um, I'm rooting for Tom Brady because he's old, and that's it's so, totally the reason. Because I liked it when old guys be young guys. It's just my thing. I, I went skiing yesterday and uh, I was reminded that I'm an old guy. Uh, so uh, my body was like, whoa, uh, you can't do that anymore. Uh, and so to watch Tom Brady at 43 beat the young guy uh, Mahomes would be I don't know, a real gift for my psychology, a real gift for me personally. So I'm rooting for, uh, I'm rooting for that. I'm also rooting for the jalapeno poppers. And the good news about not having a party uh, during uh, the football, you know, Super Bowl for us this anyway at our house, we're not having a party, uh, is I get to eat all the jalapeno poppers myself. And so that's what I plan on doing is sitting out, watching the game, eating some jalapeno poppers. All right, speaking of parties, our text today is about a party. Okay, that's what our text is today. And I want you to pay attention here. And we're in a series in John. We're in John chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend our time together. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up there. If you've got an app, you can open up there. We can follow along here in John 2. But Jesus' first miracle, and that's key to recognize, this is his first miracle. Uh, first things have importance. God is sovereign. Uh, he's sovereign over his miracles. He's sovereign over this miracle, this being the first. Jesus' first miracle was a sign that pointed to his glory in order to shape his followers' belief. It was a sign that pointed to his glory for the purpose of shaping belief, like shaping the kind of belief in the kind of God, the kind of Savior that Jesus is. Uh, you see this in 2.11. This is the summary verse of our entire text. This, the first of his signs. The first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory. So this is a sign pointing to his glory for what purpose? And his disciples believed in him to shape belief. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, says, John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus' uh, Jesus miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks uh, to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be 
perceived with the eyes of faith. And so the question I'm having about this text is what deeper reality are we to be observing about Jesus when he extends the party by providing wine? Uh, the object of belief, by the way, is not simply to have it. Like, that's not the object of belief. It's not simply to have it. It's to place it in something extraordinarily valuable, to, 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 to place it in something that has real meaning and purpose. Uh, when you look at verse 30 of John 20, you see that the entire purpose of this book is that you would place your belief in Jesus. The entire purpose of John is that you would place your belief in Him, something truly valuable. Now, Jesus did many other signs. This book is like about the signs that point to the kind of Savior Jesus is. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole objective. Our whole objective of this study is that you would believe in Jesus, that you would put your trust in him, have life in him. That's the whole objective. But the power of belief isn't in the subject of belief, it's in the object of belief. That's what the power of belief is. Belief in and of itself is powerless. Uh, you can watch a lot of Disney cartoons that tell you that it, what really matters is that you believe, but that's not necessarily true. Because uh, I could believe, I could fly, uh, and, uh, you know, a gravity has something to say about that, right? And so simply believing I can fly uh, isn't, isn't enough. Uh, putting your faith in something, an object, uh, a person, in our case, in our study of Jesus, that's where the power is. The power is what you put your belief in. Now, what you believe, then, about God will shape your expectations of and behavior toward Him. Like, what you believe, the nature of that belief, it shapes, like, what you expect Him to do, like, how you expect Him to relate to you, and, and, and what, what your behavior is going to be towards Him. So, like, if, you, if God is, like, this really, like, big, this cosmic kind of rule, uh, you know, God who's always sort of looking at you to, to identify when you're breaking the rules, when you're stepping out of bounds, when you're doing the wrong thing, then you're going you're gonna to have a behavior towards God that's a little bit more fear-based. And you're going to be walking around, like, just trying to avoid upsetting the God who's really easily upset when you step out of bounds. So the question I have for you, and this is the big question of the text, and I really want you to think about it is what do you think about? This is something you should burn some calories on right now. What do you think about when you think about God? What comes to your mind? What's your imagination? How, how's your imagination shaped? What, 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 what ideas come to mind when you think about God? Like What, what comes to your mind? Uh, A.W. Tozer says this. The essence of idolatry, that's choosing a God other than God, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And sometimes I think our thinking about God is, is shaped by some cultural force, or our thinking about God is shaped by some, some irrational fear of Him. Our, 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 our thinking about God is shaped by some, some experience maybe we've had in religion. And what Tozer says is what comes into your, our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There's nothing more important. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most uh, portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What's he like? We tend by a secret law of the soul 
to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So when you think about God, what do you think about? Tozer says, in the knowledge of the holy, there's nothing more important than what you think about him. There's nothing more important than collectively like what we think about when we think about God. So when you envision God, do you imagine him at parties? That's, that's what the text is saying. Why this miracle? Why this is the first one? Uh, when you think about God, do you imagine him imagine inviting Jesus over to your Super Bowl party? Do you imagine Jesus being present at your most joyous celebrations? Do you think, is that the kind of, is that the kind of God that you serve? On the third day, there was a wedding in, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I think one of the most interesting verses in this entire text is John 2.2. 2. Jesus also was invited. Jesus is the kind of God that gets invited to parties. He gets invited. Like, they were like, you know who would be really great to have at this party is Jesus and his disciples. They should come. And if that's not who you imagine, when you're imagining God, then you need to have your imagined reshaped. Because he's the kind of God that shows up at parties. What is the sign of this miracle then? What is the sign of this miracle is pointing to? Like this miracle is a sign. He says it's a sign. And the, the book of John says there's lots of signs. Not everything's recorded, but these signs were, were pointing towards a belief, a certain kind of belief. So what is this sign pointing to? You see it in verse 11. This is the first of the signs. What's the sign pointing to? Let's just summarize the miracle in a, in a sentence. This is a story about the time Jesus saved a party with 150 gallons of the best wine. That's the story. Wow. This is your first sign? Like this is, this is the first sign? This is, what, this is a sign pointing to your glory? Like what, what are we supposed to be observing about how we're to be believing? How is our imagination about you, Lord Jesus, being shaped by this first sign? When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's the crisis being averted. So the very first miracle isn't walking on water, isn't healing, isn't bringing someone up from the dead, isn't healing a disease, it's providing wine for a party. The wine ran out. That was the, tra- that was the tragedy. Bruce Milne, in his commentary, says, It was, however, a serious social faux pas and reflected poorly on the bridegroom. Lawsuits were not unknown in these circumstances. Can you imagine? <laughs> can, you, can you imagine showing up to a wedding going, they ran out of wine, I'm suing. <laughs> like, this, is, this is not okay. These are week-long celebrations, and, and it, it, this was a serious kind of shame storyline for those hosting this party. And Jesus is taking away shame, and he's providing wine. He's extending the party. One of the observations I think is clear in this text is this. That ordinary parties celebrated by ordinary people in ordinary life matter to Jesus. It matters. Ordinary parties celebrated by ordinary people who are not named in this particular scene because they're ordinary. Ordinary parties by ordinary people celebrated in ordinary life, it matters to Jesus. By the way, okay, so we're while we're expanding our imagination, we've 
kind of beginning to sort of, okay, does, does my imagination of Jesus include the kind of God that goes to parties? Now, I want you to think about heaven now. When you think about, when you think about heaven, what do you imagine? Like heaven meaning the eternal sort of place we go because, you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty. He was buried in the grave. He rose again. He conquered our sin and death. He gave us his righteousness. He's given us life abundantly. We know because of Christ's resurrection we will rise and we will live together with him for eternity. So when you imagine that eternity, what do you imagine? How is your imagination shaped? Is it clowns? Is it really ethereal? Is there lots of harps? Are there babies and diapers? Like, what are you imagining? On this mountain, Isaiah 25, verse 6, prophesying this future time. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So what will it be like when God wipes away tears and the resurrection is ushered in? It's a party with the best steaks and the best wine. And I'm sure if you're a vegan, you're welcome there too, right? I mean, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be good. That's the whole point of this sort of, this sort of prophecy. Is it's a party. It's a party. Heaven's a party. In Luke 15, we read this passage last week. We were talking about John the baptizer. John says, just so I tell you, I'm sorry, this, we'll come to that passage in a second. This is Luke 15. This is, the, this is the parables right here and, and the parables of those who are lost, who are found, and how is heaven described here when those who are lost are found? Woo, Luke 15, 7, just, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so when Luke 15 is telling the, the story of, of the lost sheep and, and telling the story of the lost son and the lost coin, illustrating what it's like when someone who's lost is found, the description of heaven is one, a place of joy. A place of joy. In Revelation 19, 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to, this is a picture of eternity, the marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding feast. A wedding feast. So when you think about heaven, do you think about it as a joyful place, a, a place of a feasting, a place of a wedding feast where the marriage supper of the Lamb is? Like, is that what you think about? Like a party. Sitting at a table with family and friends and, and, and laughing and celebrating and dancing and enjoying the best of life, like ordinary life. Because that's how the Bible talks about it. Uh, Jesus, by the way, wants to prolong the party. And I think this is key. Like he wants to prolong the party. Listen to what happens in verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, she looks around, she goes, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she says, hey, there's no wine. 
She just says, it's not my time. And she looks at the disciples and says, do whatever he tells you, believing. Believing in faith that Jesus wants to extend the party, wants to save the host the shame. And he does. He does what he wants. <laughs> she says, do whatever he tells you. Like, do whatever he wants. And he does what he wants. And what does he want? To extend the party. Now, this is an important kind of like moment of pause for me, okay? Because I, I talk to people I have over the years about faith, about things that matter. And, and when, when, when somebody says, like, I don't believe in God, I sometimes say, what God? Because I probably don't believe in that God either. Because not everybody who's using the word God is using it in the same way. Not everybody has the same sort of, uh, 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 the, the, the imagination they have hasn't been shaped in the same way. And, and so if you've been reading the text, you've been reading John, you're reading, you're reading through and you're going, man, Jesus is the kind of, he hangs out with sinners and, and tax collectors and prostitutes and he's getting invited to parties all the time, getting invited to parties. In fact, his very first miracle was saving a party because people matter to him. People matter to him. Is that how your imagination is shaped? Because sometimes when people say, I don't believe in God, they have a, a vision of God that's not the vision that's seen in this text. And so something, sometimes it's just appropriate to say, like, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either. You see, Mary believes that Jesus would want to prolong the party and save the host shame and embarrassment. She just believes it. Like, he's... Something about his life up until this point has shown that he's got an affection for humanity. That he would want to do this and that this would be something that would be in line with what he'd want to do. And so she believes it. So she says, do whatever he tells you. Just, you know, if you want to, do it. If not, you know, this is Mary going to Jesus now in a, in a slightly different posture. She is praying to Jesus. You see, our expectations in prayer, by the way, are shaped by what we believe to be true about God. They're, our expectations in our prayer life are shaped by what we believe to be true about God. What is Mary's prayer to Jesus in this passage, in verse 3? They have no wine. That's her prayer. Jesus, they have no wine. Here's the problem. Here's the issue. Jesus, here it is. By the way, prayer is not convincing God to care. That's not what prayer is. And sometimes people see prayer that way. They go, I'm going to go and convince him to care because I'm not sure that he cares about me and I'm going to make it really, you know, be really aggressive and I'm going to really mean it. And usually when we really mean it, we close our eyes even tighter when we're praying. It's like, I really mean this, God. And we try to convince him to care. But prayer is not convincing God to care. It's sharing a need with a God who already cares. Again, from Bruce Milne's commentary, he says this. Her request, essentially informing him, of the need is a helpful model of intercessory prayer. We all have a tendency to use prayer to dictate to God. Our part is to lay the need before him and then trust him to respond as he wills. In this, in this occasion, it's Jesus, they have no wine. In your situation, you might just say, here it is. Here's my marriage, <laughs> right? Here, here are my finances. Right, here's, you know, here's my loneliness. During this season, you know, one of the places where I've noticed in me is just a rise of anxiety. Here's my anxiety. 
Here's my hopelessness. Here it is. Lord Jesus, here it is. I don't have to convince you to care because I know you already care. You've proven you already care. I mean, you came from heaven to earth. You lived this life I could not live. You died the death I should have died. You were buried in the grave. You rose again. You conquered my sin and death. Like, you've proven you care. Like, what else is there to do to prove that he cares? Like, he cares. And so when you're praying to him, you just lay out the need. So the sign, the sign of this miracle is pointing to very specifically, the glory of Jesus. Look again at John 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory. What is glory? Well, glory is what you can see. Glory is the outward sign of an inward reality, inward truth. It's, it's when, when God shows his glory, it's, 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 it's put on display in some way that we can see you see it in John 1.14, and the word became flesh, that's Jesus. He dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. The character of God put on display. We've seen it. His glory, his character lived out in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. So if you want to know what God's character is like, you want to know what his glory is like, look at Jesus and see how he behaves. And when you look at Jesus and you see how he behaves, this is the character of God. It's the nature of God. It's the glory of God being put on display. See, this sign is showing us the character of God, showing us his character. Look at John 14, 9. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If if you've seen my glory, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me behave, you know how the Father is. You see his love. You see his affection for you. So to see the glory of Jesus, listen, we've got to look closer than at this miracle. We've got to look closer at the wedding. We've got to look closer at the wine. We've got to look a little closer at the party that never ends, which is what this whole miracle is pointing us to. So let's take a second and just look at the wedding for a second. What's unique about this wedding? Why a wedding? Why the wedding for the first miracle? Why all of this? Well, Jesus must be thinking about what many single people think about at weddings. He's thinking about his own wedding. And this is one of the places where the Bible just really pushes us, really pushes our imagination, really pushes us to, to think about God. And, and, he, and, he, and God does this, and like in his word. He, he goes, I want you to just, just use your imagination. Uh, this, uh, this is the pastor I was referencing earlier from uh, John the baptizer, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus goes, or, or John says, you know, I'm not, I'm not the groom. I'm just like one of the guys up here, but Jesus, he's the groom. He's the groom. The church is his bride. And so in Ephesians 5.25, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But the church is his bride, and he's the groom. In other words, like Jesus' wedding is his marriage to the church. Like, why this, kind of, why this kind of metaphor? Why this kind of language? Well, God's saying, I want your imagination of my, the nature of my love. I want your imagination, the nature of my relationship with you to be so expanded, to be so, to be so you know, informed that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take weddings, for example. And so do you see, do you see a couple in love? That's, that's, that's like my love for you. Do you see a husband willing to lay down his life for his spouse? That's like my love for you. So when you think about God, think about how God stretches the imagination. 
how he pushes you and forces you to think, what, what is your love really like? Like, what, what, like the passion he has for you, the love he has for you. So Jesus is thinking about his own wedding. Think about his own bride, the church. Think about what he would do for his bride. How he would lay down his life for his bride to sanctify her, to purify her, to present her holy. The wine. What's up with the wine? Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so you go to the water and you purify and wash off all the filth. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What's interesting here is that he chooses these jars for purification. He turns these jars that were set aside for purification into wine. Why? Well, Jesus must have been thinking about the cost of his own wedding. what it was going to cost him to purify you. What it was going to cost him to to make you holy. I think the text gives us the nod here in verse 4. When Jesus says to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. My hour. What's he mean by his hour hasn't yet come? In John 7, 30, listen to what happens. So they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus obviously is aware that there is in the future an hour. When's that hour going to arrive? Well, as he's sitting down for Passover in John 13, 1, he's sharing in the wine... He's breaking the bread and he's saying, this is my body broken for you. And he's taking the cup and he's saying, this is my blood shed for you. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, it had come when he was going to be the sacrifice. When his body would be broken, his blood would be shed. And he says to his disciples, I want you to remember the hour. (laughs) To remember my hour. My body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. Uh, To put it just another way, just drink the cup of suffering so you can drink the cup of salvation. And so this is pointing forward to a cup. When you see in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is praying in the garden. He says, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, I don't want this cup of suffering. Is there another way? I'll I'll do it because I'm I'm here to do it. My hour has come, and he did do it, and he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the grave. He rose again. He conquered our sin and death. He gave us his righteousness, the Holy Spirit, who affirms that to be true, and he took the cup of suffering so you and I could take the cup of salvation. And every week at New City, we break the bread and we take the cup to remember Christ's broken body for us and his blood shed for us so we can remember that his, this is our cup of salvation. By the way, right, just as we're talking about things, if Jesus can change water into wine, he certainly can change sinners into saints. And there's... 
I always feel like the Spirit says to me something like this when I get to moments like this in a sermon. And I feel like the Spirit just said it to me again just, just now. That, that there are people, uh, there are people in the world who, who, have, who are filled with so much self-doubt that they, they think, well, salvation is for somebody other than me. Like, they'll come to a text like this, and they'll say, man, this is so cool. Jesus wants to be at parties, and he, he wants me to be at a party with him forever, and I want to be at a party for him forever, and he laid down his life for me, and he's paid the penalty for my sins. He's given me his righteousness. And they hear that story, and they somehow, somewhere in the mind, there, there's, this, there's this thing that happens, and the mind says, yeah, but that's for other people, not for you. And the enemy is an accuser. That's what he does. And, and I think one of the places where the enemy just really works, but particularly in American society, where people are obsessed with image, is that people start to sort of buy into the fact that I'm somehow unworthy. Unworthy to be invited to the party. Unworthy of the love and affection. Unworthy of even Christ's love and affection. And I just want to rebuke that and say that's not true. It's just not true. God loves you. He loves you deeply. And Jesus is proof of that love. Absolutely proof of that love. And there is, there's, there's no human being on the planet who's ever lived that God doesn't love. The wedding, the wine, and the party that never ends. I think that's what this is all pointing to, the party that never ends. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So Jesus does a miracle, and of course the miracle of the wine wasn't going to be, you know, two buck chuck it was going to be something a little bit better than that and so he brings the best wine the best wine which points us to the fact that jesus is at work doing something you hear about it in revelation 21 5 behold i'm making all things new he's about doing something making things new making things better fixing what's broken in the world covering over a host's shame i mean how simple of an early miracle to just protect somebody from shame. To just extend the life of a party with 150 gallons of the best wine. By the way, this is important. That Christianity is not just about knowing deeply, it's about living deeply. And that if you, if you don't understand this, I, I want you to understand this, that Christianity is not about like getting all the beliefs right. It's about having your relationship with Jesus righted. It's about being right with Jesus. I love Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I, I come from a tradition of people who tend to, 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 to be proud about their thinking about God and getting theology right. But man, it's, Thinking about God is, 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 I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's not the jam. <laughs> knowing Him is. Like, knowing Him. 
relationally. I'll say it another way. I'm just trying to get this home. Christianity is not about adhering to the rules. It's about accepting a relationship. It's about Jesus showing up at parties and saying, I want to be with you and be near you. See, the glory of Jesus shapes what we believe about God, shapes what we believe about him. And, and hopefully this miracle shapes a little bit about your belief about God. He's, Jesus was invited to a wedding feast, and then the host was looking at shame for, for not having enough wine to extend for the length of the party, and Jesus goes, I'll provide more wine, better wine, the best wine. This, the first of, the, of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifests his glory and his disciples believed in him. Shaped their belief. So our God covers shame and extends a party. Why? Because people matter to him. People matter to him. Our God likes a party because people are at parties. Like, he loves people. I'm going to say it really, just generally, people matter to God. People do. He's proven it. People matter to God. But I want you to hear it, okay? And, and just, just, Holy Spirit, speak this. You matter to God. You matter to God. You do. You will never regret, my friend, saying yes to a relationship with Jesus. You'll never regret it. Really simple verse in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And if you want a relationship with Jesus, then just ask him for one. And I pray the miracle of the Holy Spirit will happen to you. The Spirit will come inside of you and say you belong to Him like you're His child. He wants to be near you. And the most wonderful thing, the most wonderful thing in the whole universe is to, is to know that God is so relational that He wants a relationship with you. So the big question, all right, big question of the text. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What's shaped your imagination about him? Is there anything that has shaped your imagination about him that needs to be rebuked? It's just not true. Is this parable beginning to shape for you something different when you begin to think about God? The kind of God that gets invited to parties, the kind of God that covers shame of an ordinary party by ordinary people in ordinary life, the kind of God that extends the party with 150 gallons of the best wine. So Father, I thank you for giving us the gift of your son Jesus. Um, Jesus, thank you for coming to earth and, and living and dwelling and doing ordinary stuff. I thank you for, <sighs> I mean, thank you for loving an ordinary person like me. Uh, there are times, I'll just confess, Lord Jesus, that uh, I want to be extraordinary and there's sometimes where I feel like the ex inside of me the desire to be extraordinary um, 
it, it becomes an idol. And I miss you in my ordinary life. And I know that you are present in my ordinary life and that you care about my ordinary life and you care about joy and happiness and celebration and relationship. So my prayer, I guess, for, for the people of New City today is that in the ordinary celebration of the Super Bowl or in the ordinary celebration of lunch or the ordinary conversation with a friend that we would see your presence there. That we'd look for you there. That we would invite you into the ordinary things that you really care about. Thank you for caring, caring about ordinary people like us. Most of us will not have our names in a history book. But you know our name. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.